when I think about January 6th, I don't really think necessarily just about the people who entered the Capitol. The bigger problem for us as a society is the lie that led people into the Capitol and, and what's happened to it since. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Well, Corey, we have big news today. We have a new third co-host, Ricky Schlatt. Ricky, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, Ricky comes to us from the New York Post, where she's a writer and also at Reason Magazine. She's also a fellow at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. And, you know, our show is The Lost Debate, and, and part of the promise of this show is that we're going to bring people together with different perspectives. And Ricky certainly brings that. Ricky, we're super excited to have you on board. I'm super excited to join. I think it's a really great mission fit. Um, as a classical liberal, I think that constructive disagreement and good faith debate is really what we're missing in the country and really the only thing that can heal divides and bring us forward. So I have my finger on the pulse of the libertarian kind of right crowd, and I'm excited to bring that perspective. Awesome. Well, we're just so happy to have you here, Ricky. And also, I'm personally proud that we now have a bona fide member of Generation Z <laughs> at the table. I'm really going to have to step my meme game up. Um, but let's just get right into today's topics. Coming up, Biden catches heat for saying we're still in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Is his statement accurate or a little misleading? Classes are canceled yet again in the city of Chicago. When will school closures end? But first things first, today is the anniversary of January 6th. So let's just discuss where we are a year later after that horrible event. I think the first thing is to really clear up what exactly happened that day. I mean, Ted Cruz just called it a terrorist attack. Uh, we are approaching a solemn anniversary this week, uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage, incredible bravery, uh, risk their lives uh, to defend the men and women who serve in this capital. And then Tucker Carlson pretty much attacked him for that. Was it a riot? Sure. It was not a violent terrorist attack. Sorry. So why are you telling us that it was Ted Cruz? And why are none of your Republican friends who are supposed to be representing us and all the people who've been arrested during this purge saying anything? So is this a terrorist attack? Was this just a riot or was this simply a rally that just went horribly wrong. Well, I, I think it fits definitely the definition of a terrorist attack. I think terrorism is defined as using violence for political means. And, you know, in this case, you had 151 officers uh, who were injured that day, including in some cases seriously, broken bones, concussions, chemical burns. And it was a political rally. This wasn't just a spontaneous act of violence or, you know, an act of vengeance. This was, uh, you know, Obviously, there are different people there with different motivations, but the intention of uh, entering the Capitol and causing violence there was to uh, sow certain political aims. And so in that sense, I think Cruz is correct. Yeah, I also don't know that those are necessarily mutually exclusive. I think it can also be a rally that went wrong that ended in some terror and some really despicable violence. But yeah, I think, you know, for me, looking back on it now, I, I, I think even less what those several hundred people did. Um, more so what's concerning to me is the the ongoing um, electoral changes and the ongoing sentiment and concerns about the election being fraudulent and how we move forward. So I'm curious to hear what you guys think about that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, when it comes to these changes, there have been a lot of people that are now on different election boards and people who are running for campaigns in 2022 that are vowing to make changes that if those changes were in place prior to 2020, that election may have gotten overturned. Right. Yeah. When I think about January 6th, I don't really think necessarily just about the people who entered the Capitol, right? I think Merrick Garland made an announcement about the ongoing prosecution of folks and, and most smart reporters I talk to about this issue say this is going to go on for years, the prosecutions of people involved in this, as it should. Like They should get to the bottom of this and prosecute anybody who broke the law that day. But I think the bigger problem for us as a society is the lie that led people into the Capitol and, and what's happened to it since. And I think what you see is that all available polling evidence seems to suggest that there's a certain baseline level of people who believe that the election was stolen, that continue to believe it till this day, and that former President Trump has only gotten a more rosy picture moving forward if he wants to actually, you know, steal an election or, you know, just gain support within his party for the kinds of stuff that he he wanted and didn't get in and around January 6th. And so, you know, for example, the Washington Post uh, looked at candidates for statewide positions around the country, and there are 163 candidates for statewide positions around the country right now um, running for the GOP nomination that are endorsing the big lie, and that includes 18 people for secretary of state positions and 13 for attorney general positions. So that's very troubling. And troubling indeed. Ricky, you're more in tune with sort of the right-leaning individuals in this country, and do you <laughs> feel like that they were manipulated in many ways by, you know, the big lie and different, you know, rumors about the 2020 election. Do you feel that there was a manipulation that made them more vulnerable to being involved in something like January 6th in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think that all of the like social unrest that came with the pandemic and, you know, a lot of the people that were at the riot itself were business owners and a lot of just like the fallout from everything that was going on from poor policies, from like noble lies coming from our our health officials. And there was just a lot of a lot of kind of room for conspiracy and and questioning authority and establishment. But, you know, within my circle, I know a lot of people who voted for Trump before and now are very much not excited about the idea of him coming back. And so I know something we discussed earlier was maybe my utopian ideal of a third candidate. But <laughs> I'm curious if you guys if you guys have any thoughts on um, whether a third party could arise now or if there's ever going to be a time where partisan politics aren't going to continue to pull us apart in a binary. Yeah, I think, I you know, I've always hoped for a third party, but one thing that worries me is that the same dynamics that are at play that uh, would prevent the a legitimate election from happening next time for a Democrat versus Republican would play out for uh, a third party candidate as well, especially since like if a third party candidate is going to win, it would be razor thin margins. And, and Corey, I think, as you pointed out, like it, there, there's a much greater likelihood that it would go to the Electoral College uh you know, well, process, actually, what right? would happen is if we had a third party candidate and no one got the majority that they would percent. need, yeah. then it would go to the actual, it would it possibly go to the House of Representatives yep. to choose who the actual president was. Obviously, if the House of Representatives is Republican, then that still means Trump or whoever's running for the Republican nomination wins. And that would become a huge deal. Because or at least there's a great likelihood, like we yeah. would say, like maybe, yeah. you know, at least based on available evidence. I think yeah. the scenario that I was thinking, and I was thinking about this last night, was if the Democrats were to have a chance in 2024, say Biden decides not to run and it becomes an open primary, I think the Democrats, if and if Trump is on the other side of things, I think the Democrats would have to choose someone as 
outside and as extraordinary as Trump was. I mean, this might be the case for the reconnaissance. Like this might be the case for Matthew McConaughey to step up and be the one to just like he's done in many of his movies, lead us to victory. You're not so you're not a pro rock on this. I well, Dwayne well, Dwayne Rock Johnson has already said several times that he wouldn't do it, and given his new rap song, I don't think he has the bandwidth. <laughs> but it would be interesting. It would. I mean, I do think that it's going to take, and it's kind of sad that we have to result to like celebrities who don't have any political experience just to combat the type of demagogue like status that Trump has attained but I really do think that that's the only way that the Democrats have an honest shot of getting such a large lead that it wouldn't be so close that these things in Pennsylvania and Michigan could be tested to having it flip over to Trump in some type of unconstitutional way. Right. And I, I think back to something Ricky said earlier about who the people were who showed up to this rally, right? Like, mm -hmm. so um, I was looking at the data and it's super fascinating that, you know, in the past decade, the FBI uh, data suggests that about a quarter of people they arrest for violent acts are people who are unemployed, but only 7% of the people who were in January 6 were unemployed and they were much greater proportion white collar. So 50% plus white collar and business owners like you talk about. So doctors, architects, there's even state department officials, CEOs of companies like marketing companies. Mm. And I think I'm a little bit less, I think, charitable to them than it sounds like you are, Ricky, in the sense that like there were definitely all sorts of, and will always be lies or misstatements from government officials, including you know, Trump was the person in charge of the federal government during this period. Yeah. And for me, there there was and continues, and for me, the, where I draw a line in the sand is, are there explicit purposeful lies and are people changing their, you know, their statements based on new evidence? Where what mm -hmm. one thing that worries me about Trump is, and and then the overall conspiracies around this this rally is that he's doubled down on his lies and yeah. he's requiring it for candidates for office that get his endorsement around the GOP. So this is like a purposeful lie versus like if Fauci, for example, if it's the kind of noble lie we're talking about, like when he changed his mask mandate, for example, I'm not one of those people who thinks he was lying about masks. I think that they've changed their guidance over time and sometimes it's incompetence or whatever. But but never mind the fact that he was working for Trump at that time. I don't know, maybe I'm less charitable, but. Yeah, I definitely, I, I wanna say, I definitely wouldn't use the word charitable for my position yeah. with them. Um, I mean, I do think, you know, given the circumstances, you couldn't have more kind of lines in the sand and, and things happening in 2020 leading up to this moment to just kind of spark something like that with lockdowns, with closures, with people being isolated and not talking to people with different views with um, right. the mainstream media or like a specific news channel being your only view into the outside world. And with all the unrest in cities on, on one side, you have uh, news reporters saying fiery but peaceful protests. And on the other one, it's just reels over and over and over of people smashing windows. And, and so people right. started living in these narratives in a way that I don't think they ever have before. But that doesn't mean that I'm charitable towards them. I think I just understand that there was, you couldn't have a better kind of formula for something yep. bizarre like this happening. And, you know, I'm glad that 700 plus arrests have been made and that justice is being done towards the people who were there. 
And I think now a year later, like the conversation really has to be, how do we deal with the fact that around two thirds of Republicans do believe that the election was still contested in right. some way? And, and how do we move forward? Because if we all care about this democracy and about our fellow Americans and about healing, ultimately we need to understand where this is coming from and how we can move forward together as a country if we still want to have one. Right, yeah, on a personal note, I called my father, who's a, a big Trump supporter that day of the January 6th insurrection, and he was, and I I, I guess still is, pro-insurrection. And one thing that, I, that I, one of the reasons why we start this company as a whole is what you're talking about, which is like, we gotta get out of our silos. Like, yeah. you know, for, for him to get to the point where he supported an act of what seems very clearly terrorist violence, where he's like a peaceful guy in, any, in every other respect, seems to me like a ringing red alarm to say something seriously has gone wrong in this country. I think especially having divisive media and not having social interaction, that's the problem. And so I think it's great that conversations like this are happening and that people are starting to be more cognizant about reaching out to the other side. Because in 2016, you know, the reaction when a surprise candidate one was to say, oh, everyone's deplorable or they're racist or they're irredeemable and not to try to understand how this could happen and how we move forward. And I think that it'd be a mistake to let that same sort of psychology of siloing a huge faction of the population away that just isn't touchable or isn't worth breaching a conversation with. Like if we do that again, then we're gonna be even more divided than we already are. Speaking of divided, there's nothing that really divides us more these days than topics regarding the pandemic. And right now, we've got our president, uh, Joe Biden, this past Tuesday, made a statement that he's made before, but making it now maybe a little bit different. He stated that no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We are still in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Uh, Tucker Carlson said, I believe around the same day, that virtually everyone in the country already had the vaccine and they've all got COVID. A little bit of a grand statement. Did they die though? Um, but the big, the big thing about this is, are we still in a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Is that statement accurate or is that statement simply just misleading? I, th I think I'm, I, I come down on, it, it could still be accurate because if you look at at least available evidence of who is and I, as I've described in the last episode, for me, hospitalizations and deaths are the key indicators at this point. I think we all probably agree on that because, you know, the infections are way less lethal. And I know Ricky's probably going to go through all that data with us. So people showing up to the hospitals and, you know, it's a problem not just for them, but for other people who need procedures. But then obviously people dying is a problem. That's a public good. So I view the pandemic really as being, you know, coming down to that data overwhelming numbers of people who are showing up to hospitals are the unvaccinated and the most available data in New York City shows 32 times more likely to show up to the hospital if you're unvaccinated. Larry Hogan in Maryland, the, the Republican governor of Maryland went on TV and said that the hospital beds that are, that are you know, the crisis they have in their hospitals is being largely driven by the unvaccinated. Washington State data seems to suggest this. Uh, and this could change with Omicron. So maybe it's accurate, but I think it's kind of dumb politics because I don't know who's being persuaded by this, by Biden saying this and by calling out the unvaccinated. Yeah, I truly cannot imagine who heard that and said, you know what, now is the time. I'm going down to the clinic. I'm making my appointment because it just, 
that set it off in my head finally (laughs) um but yeah i mean i think it's important to make a distinction that there's a lot that we still don't know about omicron and using these kind of blanket statements that I think we're accurate in Delta and in earlier waves and continuing to use them now as we're, we have an evolving situation. It kind of lacks nuance and it's continuing to silo a group of people out. And, you know, I, I would push back on the statistics of the vaccinated versus unvaccinated just in terms of that was true with Delta. And these statistics are from a little bit later or a little earlier than the Omicron wave. And I think it's important to kind of keep an open mind about whether this rhetoric is still going to be relevant going forward because we're seeing very different statistics on hospitalizations and deaths with Omicron. And I think that they're really encouraging, actually. So I'll agree with your statement <laughs> from the other day that I think it's a good thing, too, like in a net positive way. So, But correct me if I'm wrong, like the, and I agree with you that I think the data is going to change dramatically. But I think there we haven't seen any data to suggest that even though people are being hospitalized less as a percentage of overall infections, that the that the trend of the people who do wind up in a bed versus people who don't is not still heavily skewed towards the unvaccinated. We haven't seen anything to to suggest otherwise. It seems have like we? we don't have any data on the Omicron wave. Obviously, it's two weeks behind because infections and deaths and hospitalizations usually have that little bit of a lag. But the statistics that we have are not organized by vaccinated and unvaccinated. I think, you know, anecdotally, a lot of people who have been vaccinated have been getting it, but that's not a statistic that we can kind of assert now. But um, I think a really great case study is what's happening in South Africa. I think we have the data for that. But um, there, they have less than one third of their population is vaccinated. So it's a really good sample of how it impacts unvaccinated people. And even though their caseload went up enormously, their death rate was almost unchanged. And of the cases, I want to make sure I get this number right, of the cases in South Africa where there was a detected positive, before Omicron, about 8% of those people would die after it was 0.2%. So I think that's really encouraging. That's a largely unvaccinated population. And so, you know, I don't think that we're going to change any minds or hearts now on the issue of vaccination. And I think that the conversation might need to change now that we have a disease that's potentially endemic and a vaccine that might not actually be as powerful in fighting against it now. And so, you know, I think I think Biden's rhetoric might be a little dated and we need to wait a little longer to say whether or not this is still an, a valid statement with the new data. Well, South Africa is an interesting outlier, too, because so quickly when Omicron was detected, travel from South Africa was cut off almost immediately, way faster than it was from, from other foreign countries when the pandemic first started. And now we're seeing, based off of the data you just mentioned, that it wasn't even nearly as bad for them and that maybe that was a bit of a hasty move to make. Not to mention, just in regards to what Biden is saying about the unvaccinated, I don't think it's ever a good idea for an elected official or a leader to single out a whole group of people and say, you're the problem. Because when Joe Biden said this, it reminded me a lot of Hillary Clinton and her deplorable statement about Trump supporters, even though back during that time period, I probably would have agreed that I don't think every single Trump supporter was a deplorable person, but there definitely was some deplorables among them based off a lot of things that I was seeing in rallies. I was living in Alabama at the time, so I was seeing some really crazy things. But to just say every single person in that group is all one thing or all these different bad things, that's no different from a racist statement. That's no different from a sexist statement. And those types of broad generalizations are never a good thing for a leader because like you said earlier, nobody who's unvaccinated is going to hear that and say, oh, you just shamed me into getting it. It's just not going to work like that. I agree with you that the... 
that about both of you about the effectiveness of it, but I still think saying it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated can be read as like a just descriptor of the public health situation, which is deplorable as like an inherently negative connotation, right? Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. saying it's pandemic, saying like this thing's spreading more amongst the unvaccinated, which like I think has been true up until now. And, but also on the South Africa front, I agree that, and this is why we're pro Omicron at, at last <laughs> debate, or at least I am, is that, you know, as we talked about in the last show, this is a good thing that Omicron is less yeah. deadly. And I think we agree on that. Like this could potentially be the way out of this, especially mm -hmm. for countries that don't have high vaccination rates. But the study that uh, that we were reading about South Africa showed that per your point, I think it's the the vaccine is only 33% effective yeah. at preventing it's infections. Pfizer. Um, Pfizer, but they at least its study suggested that it was seventy percent um, effective at preventing hospitalization. So yeah. the vaccine, I think, still th is holding up in a certain kind of way. Yeah, to definitely. use our metaphor from last time, like Derek Thompson's metaphor of the knights are holding up, but maybe not the moat. Yeah, you know? I think it's important also to mention though that that's seventy percent effective against an eight percent rate of people being hospitalized versus 02 percent. So, so still, just it's a much, it's a very yeah. marginal kind of change that's being made. But that doesn't mean that for certain populations and especially going forward with boosters and at-risk demographics, like that could be really important for people that you know we know and love and are concerned about. So, well, due to the pandemic, there's been a little bit of a labor shortage in the United States. And there's a lot of people, especially with the rise of Omicron, that just aren't able to show up to uh, work as often. Uh, we've been dealing with that here at the office a little bit. And nowhere is this more evident than in the education sector and with schools. The unions in Chicago are actually, they have actually shut down schools for the city of Chicago. They've said that the schools are just not safe, that it's just too much of a risk with Omicron. But correct me if I'm wrong, Ravi, these unions in Chicago fought against vaccine mandates. So a good bit of their teaching staff was not vaccinated. And then as a result, they're now saying these buildings are unsafe because none of them were vaccinated. So now those exact same unions have basically canceled school when there was the preventative measure of them getting vaccines in the first place. Doesn't that seem like this was engineered a long time before this actual walkout took place? Yeah, it's sort of to describe this sort of series of events here, the, the, the union as all teachers unions around the country fought for teachers to be at the front of the line for vaccines under the premise that they're going to be in person first and we need to get students into the classroom and that's why they need to be prioritized, frontline workers. They did back the vaccine mandate at a certain point, but then when the mayor was trying to implement it, uh, they backed off and said essentially, no, they fought for the rights of unvaccinated people to show up to work. So it's kind of, it's murky, but in the end, they fought for unvaccinated people to show up. And per your point, yes, there's a hypocrisy there. Like you can, you could be against the vaccine mandates, but it is hard to square the idea that these places are unsafe and kids can't go to school with the fact that they fought for unvaccinated people to come in there. And I think, you know, I'm a former school principal and I can, I, I and I also coach a, uh, a, a network of schools in Chicago, a network of charter schools, um, and I've been coaching them through all of this. To me, this is unconscionable that we're now this far into the pandemic and parents, we're getting these kind of fly-by-night closures, kids aren't learning at all. Uh, and this is a part, like, you know, unions are strong in the Democratic Party, but what you're starting to see is that certain leaders like Lightfoot and Eric Adams um, are diverging from the party orthodoxy when it comes to 
some of these pragmatic issues of like kids in seats. And it is an interesting battle playing out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's worth noting that there's a 20.6% poverty rate there. And so that's really an area where childcare and lunches and having a place for your kid to go and actually thrive is could not be more important. And I think it's, you know, it's sad to me that there was a 73% vote of teachers to remain closed, but also 27% of teachers wanted to teach. Yeah. And like the idea that there's this binary that the union is going to have control over whether or not any teachers allowed to go in, whether they've had COVID, whether they feel comfortable, whether they don't think they're at risk and they think that the well-being of their students is more important. Like I think that binary is really sad and it's it's robbing kids of really their well-being and the ability to thrive. So Absolutely. And you bring up a great point, Ricky, when you talk about the fact that there are kids that are at risk in places like Chicago and school is in many ways a place that that takes them away from those environments that they have to deal with in, at home. And Eric Adams even mentioned that as a reason why he didn't want to shut down schools here in New York. The mayor of Chicago is not on board with this strike at all. And she had a lot to say about it. Let's see that real quick. We will not relent enough is enough we are standing firm and we are going to fight to get our kids back in in-person learning yeah this is a mayor who's been fighting the union since day one like i think essentially from the moment she took office she was fighting with the chicago teachers union and i think it's, it's i think it's important to take a step back to think about and, and this is not about union bashing my mom's a member of the teacher union teachers union and they have a really important place in society like for instance when the unions in new york you know, decades ago first became ascendant, teachers were making less than parking lot attendants. And so they they needed protections, they needed people to advocate for them. But I think a lot of people, me included, think that things have gotten too far, where we have these hundreds of page union contracts that make it impossible to do your job. And just to set the record straight about the, the teacher shortage, first of all, like, if, there, if there's a shortage in teachers like there are in other things, if we don't have kids in schools, the shortages of everything else will go up because parents have to stay home to watch their kids. And secondly, like the one of the reasons why we have a teacher shortage is because of lack of professionalization of the teaching profession, which in large part the union is responsible for. They fight for these uh, the, in these collective bargaining agreements for uh, low salaries for entry level teachers, uh, but high salaries for the teachers later and later in their careers because they're the people who are most powerful in the unions. They fight for early retirements. They fight for bloated pensions or high pensions at the expense of high salaries early. And basically, the reason why people aren't teaching later into life and and reason why they're not making a lot of money early and the reason why there's no incentive pay is because the unions fought for these protections. And so I would say like, we need a fundamental whole scale reform of the teaching profession and the unions need to be on board for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also could be a moment in a place like Chicago to do some kind of creative reform and have partial reopenings. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how there has been so much talk about how small class sizes benefit children, but studies have shown that there is really negligible, if not no benefit. And that ultimately, if right now, while we're working through Omicron and specific issues, we could have bigger classes and welcome more students in. And so I think that, you know, the union, unfortunately, is making it such a binary decision, but it doesn't have to be one. And it also doesn't mean that teachers that are at risk need to be exposed or on the front lines. But there's some creative solutions that hopefully we can reach. Well, the pandemic has always had these political fault lines that have always separated the right and the left. But it seems like the right and the left is unified in the sense that school closures have just gone too far and enough is enough. I mean, take a look at what the governor of Florida, who we know is pretty far to the right, has said about school closures in his state. When you look what's going on in other states. 
they're they're letting hysteria drive them to doing really damaging things. We thought that people had learned. They're closing schools. They're doing things that uh, should not be done. And that is not the way uh, you, you deal with this. And so, you know, we are 100% committed to making sure uh, that people are able to live their lives, that our kids are able to get an education, uh, that people's businesses are able to, to operate, and that people have jobs. And so that is just non-negotiable. You know, one thing I would take issue with what he says, I agree with what a lot of you said, is he said, you know, I thought people had learned. I think but. The data suggests that a lot of the districts that were quick to close are not closing. New York's a good example. Like I think Eric Adams put a line in the sand saying, we're not going to close, and he's working really hard to keep the schools open. Obviously, Chicago is a counterexample to that. Uh, but I think by and large, per your point, like regardless of where Democrats were a year ago on this, uh, it seems like most people are letting cooler heads prevail and saying, like, if this thing's going to go on for much longer, which it seems like it will, We've got to get kids back in seats. Yeah, I think there's a common sense coalition going on. And, you know, on one side, we have Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. And then we also have the governor of Arizona, who's been giving parents a $7,000 voucher to offset the costs of school closures. And I think that's a really great policy model and potentially something that other areas might want to consider doing. That kind of comes as a conflict, though, because when you look at Democrats, they've kind of been against things like vouchers. But at the same time, something like that would actually help offset the cost of childcare, which has been the whole issue with these school closures in the first place. Right. Yeah. The weird thing is right now is that in the sort of helter-skelter political environment we're in is Democrats are for uh, publicly funded childcare, but they're against vouchers. Republicans are generally against publicly funded childcare. One of my hopes politically is that these different sides of this debate realize that there's not a lot of daylight between them in, in this world of the pandemic where essentially like vouchers are childcare at this point because if you're if you don't have a school available to send your kid uh, and the government's sending you that check instead you're gonna probably use that funding to supplement the education in some form and as somebody who's a proponent of decentralized education writ large like a proponent of charter schools I like clustered schools uh, I loved what could have happened in, in San Francisco, as we reported on a couple of weeks ago, where, where parents want, created these learning hubs and could have gotten more support from the city to do that. That kind of decentralized innovation is really good, which is why I think I'm a contextual voucher supporter. I think in certain circumstances is good. One thing I do not like about the historic Arizona law, though, is number one, I think the funding is not is a little murky. It's I think it's coming from some like short term funding from the federal government. And so you'd want these things to be sustainable. But also, I think some of the triggers were like, if there's a mask mandate in your school or whatever, then you could use the voucher, which I don't love that. Like, I, I would rather it just be a blanket voucher for if your school is closed or something versus like if there's, you know, I think one of the things they had in there was that if your school's isolating or something, which like seems weird because like if people do get COVID, you might want to isolate people in your building. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think one thing that is an interesting wrinkle in it though is that you have to provide receipts and it's actually reimbursement. So you need to prove that the money is actually going to something that's going to benefit your family or your child in the end. So that's yeah. worth noting. Yeah, that's very interesting. But if we take a step back from all of this, there seems to be this, this narrative about teachers that the pandemic has made their job so much harder. And that's one of the reasons why they're so burnt out and that they need to have this extra time away from having to go into the office and everything and that they're at this greater risk. But the reality is we would never accept 
our police departments to close like this. We never accept hospitals to close like this. We never accept fire departments to close like this. Shit, we don't even accept our supermarkets closed exactly. like this. Yeah. You know? And they and people working in grocery stores make a lot less than teachers. Right, right. Yeah, don't you know, don't get into this with the Eric Adams debate that we have oh, here well, in New York. Yeah. But but yeah. no, I hear you on this. And here's the thing, I'm sympathetic to teachers. I think it's one of the hardest jobs in America. Absolutely. And I would pay teachers six figure salaries if I could. The problem is you can't pay teachers six-figure salaries um, for any of the entry-level positions because of what I talked about earlier. Like it, it, it all starts with the 45-year-old teacher who's two years away from their retirement. And if you can't give that person five times, I'm exaggerating, what the entry-level teacher is, they won't allow you to pay the person entering the profession that kind of money. And so you need to pay the people entering the profession a lot because that's what incentivizes people to get into the profession in the, in first, the first place. place yeah. yeah. But teaching is such an odd thing because I feel like most teachers that I know, they sit in this sort of middle intersection because they make a little bit more money and they're a little bit more professional than say, you know, your retail workers. Uh, I'm not going to use the word that Eric Adams uh, used to describe them. They, they have they have high skills, but also they're very close to a lot of them are either married to or friends with people who work these more professional jobs, people who work in offices. And I feel like because of that, they see a lot of their friends and people that they maybe went to college with who are working from home, who are part of the growing pajama class, as it's being called. And they feel like, <laughs> well, my job is sort of like their job. So why can't I work from home? But it just doesn't really work like that when you're dealing with kids. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting that while a lot of public schools were shut, private schools were open and theoretically those teachers are probably making more money and they're going into school every day. And so I think, you know, ultimately this might need some sort of broader societal reform because we've just seen divisions and inequity in our society grow even more. And we don't even know what the end result is going to be for kids that lost like super formative years especially in lower socioeconomic situations. Well, on that front, you know, one thing that's notable is there's this article uh, from the New York Times that uh, was from last spring is one of the most asinine articles I think has ever been printed. It's the, the headline was, does it hurt children to measure pandemic learning loss? And essentially the article just goes through one uh, quote after another from, you know, in some cases unions like the Massachusetts Teachers Union, which opposed standardized testing in the middle of the pandemic. I'm not talking 2020. This is 2021 standardized testing, which the Biden administration even supported. Um, and they they oppose standardized testing on ideological grounds because they're worried that it will be used to hold teachers accountable and actually show how shitty our schools are. But they they were using this language of equity saying, you know, it hurts kids to measure and to, to tell them they're not learning. Uh, and to me, this is this is ground zero for bad education ideas that and you know it's not just unions it's a lot of stuff that goes on in the left where the equity is is being deployed to actually deprive black and brown communities of the kind of visibility and resources that they need in order to get good education if we, we can't if we can't measure whether kids are learning or not or whether school is teaching kids then you can't improve that school like it's just like we'll, we'll be operating in a complete black box and so to me this is just another area of hypocrisy like the same people who don't want to show up don't don't even want to measure the impact of not showing up. Well, this was a great conversation. And I, I think we're really measuring up to our name of Lost Debate now that we have some <laughs> different perspectives <laughs> on the show. So Ricky, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Can't wait to have more of these conversations. And I think that's going to be our show for today. We thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, listen to us on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time. 